Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode one of Australian Hiker, the first of our regular fortnightly episodes. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at how to choose hiking equipment. Uh, We're then going to go on and have a look at uh, one of the first of the big three, or the hiking pack. Uh, And we'll then conclude with uh, one of our favourite recipes that has become a staple of not just our hiking, but also our regular life. Like any activity or hobby, hiking requires a certain amount of equipment. If you talk to a group of hikers, regardless of the the type or the length of the trail, they'll all agree that you need to have a certain amount of equipment. Unfortunately, this is where the agreement's likely to stop. No two hikers are ever going to provide you with the same advice. Uh, They're also going to give you their own opinions about what works for them. And in the case of any piece of equipment, What works for one individual is not necessarily going to work for others. So this article is mainly aimed at new hikers and will provide a basic overview about how to select the appropriate gear that you need. For me, there are two main factors that need to be considered when choosing hiking equipment. And these are function and fit, and they both carry equal weight. The first main consideration when choosing equipment is function. In a nutshell, really we need to know is, will the equipment that you have chosen do what you need it to do? And I'll use an example of a sleeping bag in this case. If you're planning on doing an overnight hike and you know from your research that you can expect at least minus two degrees, then you'll need to ensure that your sleeping bag and your sleep system as well can cope with those sort of conditions. Selecting a sleeping bag, which is much warmer, it'll cope with, with, as an example, plus six degrees Celsius, may be the way to go if, if your personal tolerance to cold works quite well. But for most people, that's going to mean you're, you're going to be very cold, and also it can be potentially dangerous, leading to hypothermia if the conditions turn worse than you actually thought. The second thing to consider is fit, or this is really about Uh, comfort and again it's equally as important as uh, function and uh, anyone who's had blisters uh, from poor fitting shoes knows that that can be not just the um, most uncomfortable thing that you can do but also can become quite um, quite serious quite dangerous Uh, as an example you know Tim's foot size is quite large Um, He has a 14 US on the left and a 13 US on the right. Uh, He could go for the middle ground and have a shoe that's half a size too big on one side and half a size too small on the other, uh, but that wouldn't be very helpful and uh, the fit would just not be right for him. And if he's in uh, rough ground, if uh, there's some particular 
areas he needs to pay attention to in terms of his surroundings, then a misstep at the wrong time could be quite catastrophic for him. So fit's really important. Uh, The other thing about fit is when you're trying on shoes in the store, um, you need to be thinking about the time of day, you need to be thinking about uh, whether you've been doing a lot of walking, and you need to be thinking about what happens when you've actually done a lot of walking. And I know that my feet do swell a little after a long walk, Uh, So if I get a pair of boots that fit me well early in the day, uh, there's a possibility they might not fit so well by the end of the day or even after a few days. I think um, think Joel's right. And and certainly for me, my my feet size really isn't out of the the norm here. Uh, I know some of my, uh, my nephews have size 15, 16 sort of feet. uh, And they, they sort of struggle to find footwear. And for a lot of uh, a lot of equipment manufacturers and suppliers, while the overseas manufacturers often make equipment in that sort of size, it's often not imported into this country. So I, I in particular have problems getting a, a good range of footwear. Um, I used to up until uh, uh, about 12 months ago do a reasonable amount of rock climbing. Uh, my selection of footwear was very limited because... Um, um, unfortunately, I don't think that uh, people tend to think that people with big feet rock climb, but it's no real difference than it is in hiking. So when I go to choose footwear, really I don't have as big a selection as someone who has a much smaller sort of foot. So the next thing that we um, are going to look at is weight versus cost. And um, as is the case with anything the, the more uh, technical the gear, uh, the more effort that's put into making it something else, the more it's going to cost. So in this case, the lighter weight gear, uh, the tech materials and so on, are the things that are going to add cost to your, um, uh, to your, your system. And, y- you know, you can see this most when you look at things like uh, two sleeping bags the, the function and the fit might be the same, but you'll have one that may weigh 800 grams and another that weighs 1,500 grams. I can bet the one that weighs 800 grams will be a lot more expensive uh, than the heavier one. And again, that's because of the, the effort that's gone into the manufacturing and the combination of technical materials um, that are there designed to do what you need them to do uh, in this case, keep you warm, uh, but not add the weight to the gear. The next factor we're going to look at is durability. Now, usually durability tends to imply it's more rugged, it's heavier wearing, uh, it will take the rough and tumble conditions, and with that, it tends to imply extra weight. And tents are probably a good example here. Some of the uh, ultralight double skin tents that are available on the market are made of extremely lightweight material and they don't uh, cope with rough handling. So if you're going to be rough on equipment or you know you're rough on equipment, you may want to factor this into your choice. I think um, for me, I tend to be rough on certain pieces of gear. Um, I, um, I tend to be rough on my pants and my clothing more so than, say, my pack and my tent. Uh, but everyone tends to have uh, have 
certain gear or some gear that they tend to sort of take uh, push a bit harder. Now we're going to talk about colour. Colour doesn't really add anything at all whatsoever to your gear. Um, it is purely personal choice. Um, if I'm given a choice between a range of colours and purples available, I will generally go purple because I like purple. Purple's my favourite colour. So it sounds a little bit odd, but I will seek out those things that are uh, purple and probably wouldn't buy something just because it was purple so it'd have to be in the range of something that I was interested in um, but definitely that's important to me likewise with Tim Tim likes uh, I will call them weird colors here I think he prefers to call them quirky colors and uh, that means anything that's a little bit bright a little bit uh, sort of out there uh, the good thing for Tim is that people are generally not interested in those colours and so they're often on sale. So while I might have to uh, pay a bit extra because for some peculiar reason in the world uh, women's gear tends to be a little bit more expensive just like women's clothing, uh, we make up with it with Tim's uh, cheaper and uh, quirkier colouring. Uh, there, there is a saying in a broader sales market um, about women's gear and it's shrink it and pink it uh, so that tends to be some of the predominant coloring uh, pinkish coloring um, for gear in most sports uh, but it is possible to get other options um, I would also say that you don't always have to buy uh, women's gear you can buy small men's gear uh, that's always a choice um, and there sometimes is a far greater range of options if you do go do go that way. I think one of the things that if if you're into the hiking magazines or you you, you look on the web quite regularly, um, Europe's probably a good indicator of what's coming into Australia the following year. Uh, a couple of years ago, we uh, we were doing some mountaineering in Switzerland. Uh, we went through some of the stores uh, and, and had a look over there. And there was an awful lot of bright green equipment that was on the market in the, in the way of clothing. And sure enough, 12 months later, a lot of that bright green equipment comes into Australia. I think, uh, I think it's quite interesting, though, that just because a particular type of gear or a particular colour of gear sells well overseas doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to sell well here in this country. Uh, and as I said, it's, uh, I, uh, I was very tempted to buy some bright green down jackets uh, that were on sale in, in my local hiking store. Uh, they were the price was exceptionally good, and if you don't mind the odd colours, you can get some quite uh, some very good deals. Just on that colour issue, I remember when we were mountaineering, um, it, it was a, an obvious thing for some of the local guides to pick out the Australian and New Zealanders. Uh, we tended to be wearing darker colours and often wearing black. And uh, they they were convinced they could spot us from the distance. I um, from my perspective, I know I know Jill tends to uh, tends to like to to match a bit. Um, I really don't care too much, uh, so I tend to be odd looking, and I and I often tend to be the the butt of uh, jokes from a number of hikers when they come across me, because I I don't tend to to wear the traditional sort of colours. Now. In deciding what equipment you're going to need, you'll find there's a sheer amount of information available and sometimes it's just way too much. 
And this is where the outdoor stores tend to come into play. Um, choosing an outdoor store in your local area, um, being comfortable with someone who's offering you advice, uh, tends to be, be quite a big help. From my perspective, uh, I tend to research things to death. Before I purchase any new piece of equipment, I've spent uh, a number of days, if not weeks, finding every available option and choice, um, finding all the technical information about the equipment. So when I go into a store, I tend not to need too much help or too much information, uh, although it's always good to sort of see what people have to say. Uh, so for me, it's more about um, finding the, the checking the size when I go into the stores more than anything else. For new hikers, though, the experienced salesperson really is um, a quite a, a key item or a key factor in deciding where people tend to purchase. On a recent hike, I, I asked a number of hikers what made them choose the particular store that they went into. Um, and um, one couple in particular indicated that they went into one store, didn't find it particularly helpful, went into another store, had an awful lot of help from them, uh, appreciated the advice and the way they were being dealt with, so ended up buying all their equipment from there. And we've done similar sorts of things as well. In our 2012 Bhutan hike, uh, we found a, a, a store manager who was really helpful, uh, really spent was willing to spend the time with us. And as a result, we, uh, we at that stage, we were doing a total rekit from our older, outdated gear uh, and ended up spending quite a bit of money just because this, this individual was willing to help us and look after us. I'd agree with that, Tim. Um, for me, it's mostly about how I'm treated when I walk in. Um, if if you ignore me and I want some help, uh, then I probably won't stay long. Um, if you tell me obvious things that you know Blind Freddy could work out, then um, that doesn't go down well so well either. I must admit, I um, I also tend to buy most of my equipment from specialist hiking stores. I have been into the specialist uh, sporting footwear stores in the past uh, and just been looking at uh, shoes just to kill some time over, over lunchtime uh, and had staff uh, uh, serve me and not necessarily give me the wrong information but just try and give, give me information that wasn't particularly helpful. Whereas I find that if I go into the, the specialist hiking stores that they tend to know the product, they know it very well uh, they'll offer uh, generally offer an honest opinion. Now, one of the other factors that tend to uh, tends to come into play is the uh, the feel good factor. Uh, this is this basically sometimes you just like a piece of gear so much um, you don't really care so much about price you don't really care about color uh, but it just makes you feel good for some, for whatever reason. Now I have a number of pieces of equipment that I actually use that I've bought as hiking equipment that I still wear on a regular basis as hiking equipment, but I also wear these these pieces of clothing both to work and socially. Uh, my hiking footwear is also in that same sort of category. I, uh, I actually walk to work each day. Uh, I wear my hiking footwear for that, uh, but I'll also wear it out on the weekend because it's comfortable for what I'm doing. Um, now, one other thing I'd sort of suggest for people is that um, 
if you've been around hiking stores for for a, a reasonable period of time, you soon learn that there tends to be um, a cycle of sales that tends to occur. Um, for both Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra, and I'm assuming it's probably the same for the other capital cities in Australia, the hiking stores tend to be concentrated. So I know when I've been up to Sydney before, uh, the main area for hiking stores, you'll often you'll find four stores within about a 50 to 60 metre length of the street. Canberra, same situation. We have four stores, all within around about 50 to 60 metres of each other. And Melbourne's the same. Again, you get the concentration of those stores. They all tend to congregate, which does make it easier for people to, to sort of shop around and see what's available. But it also does mean that you tend to get sales happening on a fairly regular basis. So it's not unusual to have coming towards the end of the year. And apart from having what you would think is Christmas sales, most of the equipment manufacturers in the Northern Hemisphere are in the process of bringing out their new ranges. They're looking at selling off their old models. Uh, and um, you can actually get some, some very good deals. So unless you're in a particular hurry to buy a piece of equipment or something's just broken and you, and you need to, needs a piece of gear for the following weekend, have a look at the prices on offer. Have a look at the, the, what's, what's available. And if you've got some friends who are keen hikers, um, ask them about uh, when the potential sales cycles are likely to be. Uh, and certainly in Canberra, for us, it's around about uh, Easter when all the really big sales tend to occur and you can get some very good deals. This next segment is the first of our regular equipment reviews. And for today's piece of equipment, we're going to be looking at part of the big three. In hiking and camping, the big three is those pieces of equipment or the three pieces of equipment that tend to make up the bulk of your weight when, that you're going to be carrying. And this includes the pack, the shelter, which is either a hammock or a, um, a tent of some type or a tarp, uh, or your sleep system, which is often made up of a sleeping bag or quilt and some sort of mat or pad that you wear underneath it. So in today's section, we're going to be looking at specifically the Osprey Exos 48 litre pack. Now for me, this is a fairly new pack. I've only owned it for around about four months and I bought it specifically to, underdo, to, uh, to do our recent Larapinta trail trip. Now, I'd already had a larger pack, uh, uh, which I bought uh, towards the end of last year, based on the recommendation from all the websites that to do the Larapinta trail, you need a 70 to 80 litre pack as, as an ideal. So I, went, I opted for the smaller size at that stage, bought a pack that uh, for my size, uh, which is a large, ended up being 73 litres and found that when I packed it with everything that I planned on taking on my trip, it was only around about 60 to 70% full. Now, a pack that weighs that sort of or carries that sort of size of, or, or weight of equipment tends to be a bit on the heavier size. So for me, that was around about a 2.2 kilo pack. And I sort of thought, well, I'm trying to head towards becoming an ultralight hiker. Uh, and, and for ultralight hikers, um, that's a, a base weight of um, round about um, 4.5 kilos, which is not a lot. So that's the pack, the sleep system, and the actual tent itself, or the, the shelter itself. And I'm, while I'm still a way away from that, um, reducing the size of the big three tends to make quite a bit of difference. And we'll talk more specifically about 
ultralight hiking in an upcoming episode. So I opted for the, the Exos 48 pack after doing a lot of research uh, and thought, yes, I should be able to fit all this in based on my previous uh, uh, shakedown hike that I'd gone through and done. So when I first re uh, received my pack, I went through and uh, assembled all my equipment for the trip, including food. Uh, I filled my water bladder uh, and went through and proceeded to put my pack together and found that while I could actually fit everything into the pack, it was a bit of a tight squeeze. So after two more attempts at going through and packing, um, looking at what equipment I was carrying, um, I managed to get everything into this pack quite comfortably uh, with a, um, a total weight of around about 14.7 kilos, which is around about 32 pounds. Uh, and that was with uh, four days of food uh, and three liters of water as well as part of that. Now that's hard, hardly ultralight, but it's certainly within the base weight is classed as within the lightweight category. Now I've uh, one of the reasons I chose the Exos pack, uh, and this is this is tending to be a criteria that we want to look at for for Australian hiker, is is the equipment available readily in Australia, uh, either through one of the hiking stores, or if it's available online. How amenable are the actual websites or the overseas uh, suppliers to returning equipment if they're not quite right? So I went into um, the stores. I uh, had a look around. I worked out that, yes, this, this pack did actually fit me and it was comfortable and ended up buying um, the 48-litre the pack. Uh, and there were choices of either a 38-litre version or a 58-litre version. The 38 for me was definitely going to be too small. There was no way knowing I was going to get all my equipment into that sort of size pack. Um, now, one of the things that I like about uh, the Osprey packs in particular is most of them tend to have that trampoline-style suspension on the back. So it actually ends up lifting the, the bulk of the pack away from your back, uh, allowing a bit of air to flow through. Uh, and as a result, you tend not to get hot and sweaty. So uh, on the actual trip itself that we did to, uh, to Central Australia, uh, 32 degree days, uh, I didn't at once have a sweaty back from having the weight of the pack sort of sitting on my back. So it's certainly, uh, certainly a big bonus for me. Now, the Exos pack is classed as um, an ultralight pack. And if you, uh, if you ever read a number of articles or have a look at images from people who do the American Long Trails, the, the PCT and the Appalachian Trail, the Exos pack is one of the main packs that's used on these trips. Um, and as part of that, they too tend to design and build it as an ultralight pack. And this means it has a, a number of specific features. So the pack brain, which is the top pocket, uh, can actually be removed if you don't want to use it and it has a built-in flap that uh, it uses as a closure cover. Um, the weight can be further, uh, the, the weight is actually reduced by removing this uh, pack brain, but you're also removing six liters of carrying capacity. And for me, I tend to like using the pack brain. I, uh, I tend to put my electronics, my valuables, uh, and also my snacks that I'm gonna be using for the day so I don't actually have to go into my pack if I can help it. The pack has quite a few uh, storage options, uh, and one of the main things that I like on this pack is the large mesh uh, pocket on the back, uh, and that's where I tend to store my uh, my tent. Uh, 
uh, and we use a, a two-person tent so I tend to carry the all the uh, the material uh, and uh, Jill tends to carry the uh, the the, um, uh, the 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 pegs and the, and the poles as well um, the pack itself, uh, or the, the mesh pack itself, tends to, when you use it, tends to make it look like the pack's a bit pregnant. So if you have a look at some of the images on the website, um, the pack itself's quite small, but the mesh pocket actually sits out quite a way. Um, the other pockets on it uh, tend to vary. We've got uh, a couple of shoulder pockets, uh, which again tend to be, I tend to use for carrying um, hand sanitizer or a, something like a cliff bar. Uh, like most packs, they come with uh, two po uh, pockets on the waist uh, belt. Uh, and for me, this is probably one of the, the negatives um, of this uh, pack, that the pockets tend to be just a tiny bit too small. The pack also has a um, uh, an internal pocket for storing the water bladder. Uh, and while this tends to be an industry standard, my larger Osprey pack has an external bladder, which means you don't have to unpack the whole thing to actually get into the pack itself to to change the bladder over. The other downside of this pack is the lightweight material. It is very lightweight. Uh, the size large that I carry is 1.09 kilos, so it's very lightweight. But as a result, the material is a bit on the, the lightish sort of side. Uh, so if you're rough with your equipment, if you throw your pack down on the ground, if you tend to drag it rather than picking up, it's not going to be as durable. And I think that's a general thing. This is a lightweight pack. I think it's designed to have it only for a, a year or two or three. It's not going to be one of those heavy grade packs that you have for five or six years or 10 years even. Uh, my oldest pack at the moment is, is a 10 year old pack. Uh, it looks pretty new. Uh, it, it tends to have lasted quite well, but it's certainly a heavier. Um, but I mean, overall, I think the Exos pack is a brilliant pack. Uh, and it's certainly, I own five packs at the moment. Um, which I, I do need to start getting rid of a few of them. Um, but I've owned this pack for only over four months now and it's certainly fast become my favourite pack. Yes, Tim, we did see a few people with the same pack uh, along the Larapinta Trail. Um, I was quite uh, bemused when we bumped into a couple. Uh, he had the 38 litre and she had the 58 litre. I wasn't quite sure what was going on there. Uh, she was certainly much smaller than him, but ended up with the larger pack with more stuff in it. So um, I'm not sure if that was good planning on his part or poor planning on hers. This last segment for today's show is basically based around food. Now, my wife has accused me on a number of times that, that she's number three in my life as far as favourite things. Uh, the first one being food, the second one being physical activity, and the third being hers. So I'm not quite sure where she gets that from, but uh, <laughs> um, I must admit, I do like my food. Uh, and certainly uh, hiking recipes and food will become a fairly important part of this podcast. The first recipe I'd like to share with you is one that's fairly common and fairly well known. Um, but again, because I do like my food, I like to fiddle. If I'm not quite happy with it, I'll adjust the recipes, I'll make changes. Um, and I want to try, if I'm going to have to eat, um, eat my food I want to, uh, for over a period of a couple of weeks, I want to make sure that I'm happy with it. If I'm not quite happy with it, I think, I think it's time for the recipe to either be changed or to go. Um, 
I'm also heading towards becoming or trying to become an ultralight hiker. Um, and whether I get there or not, I'm not quite sure. But um, I, um, what I will find is that um, I'm looking at ways of minimizing what I carry. So a lot of the recipes that we'll talk about on this podcast will be no cook recipes. I think uh, there's enough uh, dehydrated meals and enough recipes out there in relation to uh, uh, on how to cook food. Uh, so I think I'm going to try and, uh, and, and collect together a good batch of recipes that you don't have to cook. So today's recipe is the overnight oats. Um, and it typically, the best way to think about this is porridge. Um, this is a recipe that has become one of my favorite meals at home. Um, and it's a bit of a trap sometimes because um, dry weight, a meal is about 115 grams. Uh, but by the time you add uh, the weight of um, the wet ingredients, uh, you can end up with a, a serving of around about 500 odd calories. So it's a, a good calorie dense food, which is what you want when you hike. Um, but it's, uh, it's a bit of a trap if you have it every day. It tends to sort of uh, add a bit of weight on if you're not hiking. So for this recipe, um, really it, uh, it consists of a half a cup of rolled oats, 10 grams of freeze-dried fruit, which are available for many of one of the major supermarkets, and I prefer mango or strawberry as my prefer, uh, personal choice. Three quarters of a tablespoon of chia seeds, and this tends to give that gelatinous sort of um, a texture that um, you'll often get with porridge. Milk powder, one tablespoon. Two tablespoons of peanut butter. Uh, I use half a teaspoon of coconut flour sugar, uh, and I don't tend to add sugar to most of my food and I normally don't eat sugar. This just needs a tiny bit of sweetness added to it. So half a, tablespoon, half a teaspoon is quite uh, good for me. And then three quarters of a cup of water. Now, what I do when I'm going through and camping is I add all the dry ingredients, um, normally in a Ziploc bag. Um, and uh, when it comes time to prepare it, I'll often tend, I will actually carry a, uh, a 500 gram peanut butter jar uh, uh, and use that as my, my camp stove for, a, for want of a better term. So I add the dry ingredients, I add the water and the peanut butter and shake for around about 10 to 15 seconds. Um, this really is all you have to do and the recipe, even though it's called overnight oats, the recipe is ready in around about uh, an hour and a half to two hours. So all you really need to do when you eat it is just go through and stir it just to make sure the peanut butter's mixed through uh, and it actually uh, um, uh, is quite a, a good meal that I tend to, I'm quite happy to eat for breakfast, lunch or dinner uh, and I usually find that I'll, uh, I'll have this at least once every second day. Tim does like it. Uh, he wasn't kidding when he said that he liked to have it a lot. Uh, we carried a lot of... Uh, peanut butter on the Lara Pinta trail I can tell you um, I do like it uh, it's probably I find it quite um, filling it's probably not something I would want to have every day but every every couple of days uh, it was um, uh, an, enough to keep you going the peanut butter for me is obviously the tasty bit and uh, it definitely is calorie rich all right, that's the that's all for today's episode. Um, please bear with us while we uh, we learn how to put the show together, how we uh, learn how to go through an edit, 
uh, it's going to take us a little while to get things uh, things put together. Uh, but hopefully you'll you'll appreciate what we're trying to achieve. And if you have any suggestions, please drop us an email through the website or through Facebook, making some suggestions about what you'd like to see. In next week's episode, uh, we're going to about talk about uh, next week's episode's titled "A Journey Towards Ultralight," uh, and we're going to talk about ultralight hiking. I'm looking forward to it, Tim. And thanks everyone for listening. Until next time. Bye for now.